Welcome to the NATO Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sajjan Gauhel, and in this episode, I speak with Ravi Satkalmi, the Director of Intelligence for the United States Capitol Police. I discussed with Ravi about his unique role with the USCP in leading a team charged with identifying and interdicting threats to the US Capitol and members of Congress. Ravi Satkalmi, welcome to NATO Deep Dive. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to, to the discussion. It's going to be our pleasure. So the United States Capitol Police is a unique law enforcement agency. Can you explain what makes it so different to others in the U.S.? Sure. So it is, uh, firstly, the um, only law enforcement agency that uh, is uh, falls under the purview of the legislative branch of government. So all the federal law enforcement agencies we typically think of the FBI, ATF, um, HSI, uh, all are under the executive branch. The Capitol Police is under the legislative branch and is tasked uh, with protecting Congress. Uh, and that includes uh, the members uh, of Congress, the senators and, and the representatives, uh, their staff while they're here on campus, uh, the visitors that come to, uh, come to our campus. Um, but I think the other thing that um, most people don't realize is, you know, our authority and our responsibility uh, extends far beyond, you know, the campus of uh, the U.S. Capitol itself. And so our responsibility to protect uh, the members of Congress uh, extend uh, nationally. So we're responsible for their security um, in their district offices, um, in their home states, um, when they are traveling, uh, when they're on recess. Uh, so all of that uh, falls to us uh, to, to manage uh, and to, to get ahead of. Um, and, you know, it's unique in, in, uh, in that regard. Uh, it's a relatively small agency for the, for the footprint that it needs to defend, understanding uh, kind of the national uh, 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 purview that, that we have. Uh, and, you know, that will extend at times uh, overseas as well. So when our members are going, you know, on their uh, overseas trips uh, to different nations, we're also responsible for co- making sure that we, we are coordinating security uh, for them as well. Um, and so it's it's a large uh, responsibility that we have. Uh, and, you know, it's one that uh, we're continuing to, to improve upon, uh, particularly in uh, the current threat environment. So that's really interesting. Um, and if I understood correctly, so it's not just uh, the U.S. Capitol that you, you're covering. You're actually looking at uh, protecting the uh, con- people of Congress across the United States, uh, which right. obviously extends to Hawaii and, and, and Alaska and um, as well. So what exactly does that entail when it comes to having to safeguard them when they're not in the Capitol? Yeah. So, you know, for, for us, um, it, you know, it depends on, you know, some of our, um, uh, high ranking leadership, uh, in Congress do get, um, details that are not dissimilar from, you know, the details that we typically think about when we think about protecting the president or the vice president, obviously that is work that the secret service does. Uh, it's analogous for us when we're talking about, uh, say the speaker of the house, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a similar level of, um, focus that we provide uh, for our congressional leadership uh, and, uh, for their security. But, you know, we are looking at 535 members of, uh, of Congress that we are responsible for, and we do not have the resources to, you know, provide everybody uh, with uh, such, you know, round-the-clock protection. And so oftentimes what happens is we rely a lot on our partners 
um, to help us extend our security footprint. Um, oftentimes, that uh, that will be state and local agencies, um, county, you know, county agencies, police departments um, that we will pick up the phone and reach out to when we know that a member is going to be in their jurisdiction uh, and try to coordinate uh, any kind of security. Uh, that may be needed for an event uh, that the member will will be at. And so those those relationships are, are really key for us. Uh, they are um, kind of force multipliers uh, for us, uh, I think very much in the literal uh, literal sense. Um, and you know a lot of that threat picture and that approach is uh, driven by uh, the intelligence, right? So what is the threat that any given member of uh, the body may be, facing or what is the threat that elected officials in general in the United States uh, are facing? Um, you know, who are the threat actors? Where are they most active? What have they been saying lately? All of that kind of comes into the picture when we think about resourcing for protection uh, for uh, all of these elected officials. You, you, in some ways, you've, you've kind of answered what, what my next question was going to be, but let me see if I can also um, extract more from, from what you're saying, because it is actually a very, very unique uh, role that um, your, your, your agency plays. So you're the director of intelligence at the United States uh, Capitol Police. Uh, what would you say is an average day in what you have to, uh, to look at, and why did you want to take on this role? Okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think anybody that uh, does this type of job, particularly from a protective standpoint or an intelligence standpoint, uh, will tell you that the average day is probably not average. And, you know, uh, it will really depend on, you know, what the uh, what's happening that day. Right. So uh, our concern ranges uh, anywhere from, you know, protests that are happening here on Capitol grounds and making sure that we know who is uh, uh, approved to be here on Capitol grounds for their daily protests. Um, and, you know, if they are here to make sure that uh, not only uh, are they not, you know, a security concern, but also making sure that they themselves wouldn't be the target uh, of any potential malicious action. Uh, so that falls to us. Um, you know, that's a that's a daily, uh, daily task. We have protests here every day. Uh, and, I'm, you know, I like to say that, you know, they, they go on without incident. And these are protests covering all range of political views. Um, and the fact that you don't hear a lot about them is good news for us. Right. You know, they're, they're going on um, uh, every day uh, as they're meant to as they're meant to do. Um, you know, our day to day also includes taking in threats that are being made to uh, our members of Congress. And we're getting that from all types of directions. You know, we have members of offices that are calling in saying, you know, there's a particular individual that they know about uh, that they think warrant some some scrutiny uh, or we are finding it uh, online. There's commentary online suggesting perhaps that uh, somebody wants to target to kill uh, a member of Congress. And, you know, that kind of language ebbs and flows with uh, a little bit of the 24 hour news cycle and who's got uh, the spotlight that day. Uh, and so a lot of our work is uh, determining, you know, which of these, uh, you know, which of these are, um, you know, credible threats and which ones, you know, you can kind of tell from context, maybe somebody just blowing off steam. Uh, but there's a lot of that that happens, you know, it's not a perfect science and anybody that's in the threat mitigation space uh, will tell you that and it's no different for us. Um, 
you know, it's also making sure, as I was talking about, that we know where our protectees are going to be at any given time and that we've got the resources in place uh, to make sure that they are protected and understand the threat that they are facing. Um, and, you know, those are, you know, some of our kind of key lines of, of effort uh, as we think about protecting Congress. Uh, and a lot of that uh, is, you know, done through, as I mentioned, relationships um, and relationship building. A lot of that is done internally, of course. You know, we've got our, um, dignitary protection elements, we have our uh, threat uh, assessment elements, all of which are, um, you know, crazy busy um, as, uh, you know, which is not going to be surprising. Uh, so they're doing all that work on a daily basis, uh, while we're also trying to stay ahead of threat and anticipate what's coming down the road. And for my shop, which is, you know, the intelligence shop here, uh, it's to find a way to support each one of those kind of operational um, uh, prerogatives that, that we have, uh, and also start, you know, continuing to build out um, subject matter expertise on the range of threats that um, government officials and elected officials and law enforcement face uh, in this country. So it's a pretty wide range of responsibility that we're trying to tackle uh, every day. It definitely shows just how wide the the challenges uh, are. And I want to come back to that in, in a moment. So... Um, Part of what I was also uh, curious about is what made you want to to take on this responsibility. Uh, it's uh, it sounds very challenging, very hectic, uh, and uh, no doubt will give you a lot of gray hairs in the future. So, so I've what got is some it? now, in fact, the <laughs> <laughs> listeners can't see you, but they're there. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, uh, the opportunity is one that I don't know that I could have turned down it you know um i joined just last year so i've only been here for for over a year and before this um as you know i was over at nypd for for over a decade uh working counterterrorism uh there um but you know particularly after january 6th and particularly after um the attention that was paid uh to um you know protecting congress after that day and the challenges that um, the uh, organization was facing to, to kind of get ahead and stay ahead of that threat. You know, when, you know, I, I applied when I saw the, uh, when I saw the posting, not necessarily thinking it would come my way, but when they did call, you know, to me, um, I couldn't say no, you know, if they decided that this is, you know, my background is something that, that could, could help them. Uh, that is something that, uh, you know, I was, I felt that was a privilege to be offered. Uh, and I, you know, couldn't turn down and, you know, all, so much so that actually, you know, I don't know if I had told you this, but before I moved here to take this job, I was actually in, in contract to buy another home in New York. And I basically we had to walk away from that contract to, to take this job. Um, but, you know, I think it was a one, once in a lifetime opportunity uh, and one with the potential for real impact. And I, I couldn't uh, say no to that. Most definitely. Um, I think an obvious question that's going to come up is, of course, the January 6th, um, 2021 uh, protests that have attracted a lot of uh, attention around the world, not just in the U.S. So as you mentioned, you had a different uh, role at the time when you were with the um, uh, NYPD. Um, I guess with the benefit of hindsight, uh, uh, is there uh, something that could have perhaps been uh, looked at to have preempted what was going to transpire? Or is it one of those situations where it spirals so quickly that it is ultimately very hard to to anticipate something off of that scale yeah you know i think i spent i spent a lot of time 
thinking about this question, and not just me, obviously, you know, my colleagues here that have were here that day and continue to work this job and continue to drive the mission of this agency have spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what could have been done differently or uh, what needs to change going forward. And, you know, that is continuing to drive uh, decision making here at Capitol Police. Uh, it continues to drive their support uh, around growing, uh, you know, the uh, intelligence apparatus here at Capitol Police. Um, and when we talk about, you know, January 6th, you know, I think there were lots of elements that fed into what happened that day. Um, you know, there were conversations online indicating a level of uh, heated discourse uh, that were that was kind of directed and coming out of uh, this idea of a stolen election uh, in, in 2020. Uh, a lot of, you know, there was a lot of conversation um, uh, about that. Um, you know, we had that kind of um, organizing happening online. We're coming obviously still in the midst of COVID. A lot of people that were um, unemployed uh, or uh, severely affected by the overall effects of the pandemic in this country, um, you know, and we in the, the threat space had thought a lot about what would the impact be of large populations sitting at home um, you know, online, uh, and uh, whether or not that would lead to some kind of increased consumption of um, content that might motivate them to act violently. Um, and, you know, to some degree, I think we saw that with January 6th. We saw that in, another, in a couple of other cases that are not related to January 6th, but I think we did see some of that. So there was that factor uh, as well. Uh, it was a politically charged environment. Uh, and, you know, I think all of these factors were coming together uh, in a very unique way uh, leading into uh, into January 6th. And I think uh, what we saw there is um, something that nobody really expected to see here uh, in the United States. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because we had seen something similar happen in Germany, maybe about a year before that. We saw something very similar happen in Brazil earlier this year in terms of, you know, attack on their uh, on their parliament and their government. Um, and, you know, it raises the question as to, you know, whether or not uh, this is becoming more of the norm or whether or not it's, it's an anomaly. Um, and, you know, we, we certainly hope it's uh, more uh, anomalous than, than normal, uh, but that's one of our jobs is to continue to look to see what factors uh, are out there that not necessarily would replicate January 6th because, you know, I think the agency itself, Capitol Police itself, has made a lot of changes after January 6th to make sure that doesn't happen again. But what is the next thing going to look like that uh, we need to be open to uh, expecting? Uh, and I think that's 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 the real challenge. So to build on that, you mentioned about the next thing. And um, do you see an evolution of the threats that you've had to deal with from the time you were with the uh, NYPD uh, to now, has the has the scenario altered? Have the way you assess things changed as well? Yeah, so, you know, I joined NYPD in 2011. And, you know, even at that time, we're talking, you know, kind of coming out of the, the mid to late 2000s, um, you know, there was still a very kind of Al-Qaeda mode centered focus on what the terrorist threat was. It was still very much focused on Islamic extremism. It was focused on, um, you know, uh, operators being sent to the United States or being embedded here in the United States to carry out operations. Um, and I think all of that 
is still at play. I mean, I think, you know, since the time I joined NYPD 12 years ago to today, we've seen a lot of trends related to to that threat stream, right? We've seen, um, you know, the killing of Zawahiri. We've seen the rise and fall of ISIS. We've seen um, the um, kind of uh, move towards, you know, this whole kind of um, characterization of uh, inspired and directed um, attacks. Like, and through that, I think what we have seen is um, a coming together of tactics and a coming together of um, um, modes of motivation uh, that I think have spread across the extremist spectrum. And what I mean by that is, you know, you think about the propaganda that Al Qaeda really pioneered in terms of trying to get instructions into the hands of their followers here in the United States, such that they didn't have to travel to Afghanistan or to Pakistan uh, to get training. They could just do it at home. And that was a very successful tactic. And ISIS took it up uh, another level with the level of kind of graphicness uh, and gore uh, that I think attracted a large amount of viewers. And I think also showed uh, people that were not even into is you know kind of the Islamic extremism uh, piece of this how effective that can be uh, in terms of getting attention for your cause, uh, getting recruitment for your cause. Um, and so we've seen that be adapted by uh, other threat actors. Um, particularly when we talk about uh, white supremacists, neo-Nazi groups, um, and, um, you know, what we call, you know, accelerationists, those that essentially want to bring a collapse to the current system in order to replace it something more in their liking, which in this case is oftentimes a white, a white ethno state. Um, but you see them adopt these same tactics, right? The propaganda is out there, the messaging is out there, that you can do it yourself is out there, the, you know, pick up what you have available to you, that message is out there. Um, and you know we've seen that progression, I think, over the course of the past uh, past decade or so. And I think what we're seeing now is, you know, now that those tactics have kind of been tried and true, and people understand kind of what is at their disposal if they want to sow chaos. Um, I think the next transition we're seeing um, is just a away a from um, kind of um, discrete lines of uh, of hate ideology, right? And so it becomes harder to put folks into a particular bucket because people are kind of, um, you know, choosing what they want to, to, to act on in terms of their grievances. And it's not always coherent. Uh, it's not always what we would think, you know, are um, ideological kind of like uh, bedfellows, but, you know, threat actors out there put it together themselves and say, well, this is why I'm angry uh, and I'm going to get go ahead and act on it. Uh, and I think this is we see this a lot with conspiracy theories, uh, which I think is harder for for us to, to to wrap our heads around at times. Some of the bigger ones we understand, uh, but there are always more out there. Um, and, you know, some of these conspiracy theories, you know, do uh, end up, uh, you know, motivating violence on the uh, on the part of those that that adhere to them. Uh, but those become difficult for us to to pick up uh, in the way that we were able to pick up uh, folks that were kind of more disciplined uh, in the communities that they engaged in uh, or, you know, the ideology ideology that they were espousing. So that that's a challenge for us. And the other thing I'm thinking about a year from now uh, you know, I probably wasn't thinking it was going to be asked quickly, but, you know, we've got AI and ChatGPT and, you know, uh, these new technologies that are uh, uh, coming up and people kind of racing to integrate them into kind of all facets of life. But, you know, it, it becomes easy to, to see, you know, a world where, you know, 
the motivator uh, behind a hate ideology is no longer a person, but, you know, some, you know, chat bot, essentially, that um, people will go to to get the guidance that they need uh, in order to, to push this forward. So all of a sudden, we're not talking about, uh, you know, somebody that we can arrest, right? We're talking about a, a program uh, that has enough uh, smarts to it uh, to be able to, to radicalize uh, and uh, and to mobilize. And I think, you know, that that's going to be a, a brand new challenge uh, for us. Yes, I'm actually reminded now of uh, when we were in uh, Las Vegas for that counterterrorism conference where our good friend uh, Rebecca Weiner from NYPD mm -hmm. gave that presentation, which I found absolutely frightening about AI. Right and uh, how it can be utilized and, and, and actually sow a lot of panic and discord um, in, in society. So yes, that is an emerging challenge that has suddenly really rapidly accelerated, uh, perhaps faster than any of us were, were anticipating. Do you also um, find that um, hostile state actors come into your purview in, in the work that you do? Yes. Um, and, you know, we, we think about, you know, threat protection, we often talk about, you know, the lone wolf actors, but actually it's the full kind of gamut of threat that we are concerned about. And so that includes things like um, counterintelligence by nation states and includes cyber threats. Um, you know, it's a pretty broad scope of responsibility that we have in protecting, in protecting Congress. Um, and, you know, we know some of our most kind of, um, um, concerning uh, nation state adversaries, I think have grown a little bit bolder over the past few years. Um, you know, we've, we, we talk about Iran and we talk about uh, the plot, uh, you know, to assassinate uh, uh, John Bolton. Uh, you know, we talk about a, a Russian um, uh, plot to assassinate a uh, CIA operative uh, in Miami. Um, we've got the Chinese uh, setting up police stations in New York and other uh, other places um, in the United States and elsewhere. And I think there's uh, a brazenness that exists among our nation states uh, uh, actors that uh, didn't exist uh, uh, some time ago. Uh, and I think they're really pushing the, the boundaries. And for us, when we talk about the folks that we protect, um, you know, these are people that are vocal on a lot of these issues, particularly on things like China or the war in Ukraine uh, or sanctions against Iran. Um, these are all uh, issues that uh, are key policy issues that Congress weighs in on. Uh, and because of that, our, our protectees are vocal about these issues. And, you know, it, it's concerning to us that um, some of these boundaries are, are, are being pushed. And that absolutely informs uh, how we think about uh, the threat that is facing uh, our protectees. Um, yeah. Okay, so you've got all these different... Uh challenges, threats that, that are emerging. So um, I've always wanted to ask this type of question, I guess, uh, with because we have politicians in our various countries and they come from various different ideological perspectives. The way they uh, interact with people will also vary. So how do members of Congress interact with uh, U.S. Capitol Police? I mean, by and large, do they comply with all the security issues that they're guided on? Uh, that emerge? Do they get upset if their day isn't going to go according to plan because you have to give them some bad news that something is emerging and therefore you need them to to perhaps change the order of their day? Uh, how how does that work? Right. No. So it's it's a great question. I mean, 
you're basically asking, you know, to what degree are, you know, our potential, um, potential victims partners in their own protection. Uh, mm. And I think that is uh, a key aspect to just kind of the, the protection uh, industry itself is you need the cooperation from the folks that uh, you are trying to protect. Um, and, you know, with 535 members, you've got a range of views about, you know, uh, Capitol Police and how uh, threat will affect a given member and how much they themselves want to participate. And for a lot of members, it's a calculation of, um, you know, being able to interact with their constituents versus, uh, you know, having to stand back uh, from that. And for elected politicians, and this is their job, right? Uh, meeting with constituents is their job. This is an open campus for that reason, right? Uh, and it's, it's a security challenge for us, right? This is a public building. Uh, the Capitol is a public building. Um, and, um, you know, we need to make sure that uh, we are continuously educating uh, the folks that we protect about what they can do to keep their their selves uh, themselves safe. Uh, and generally, we, we do get cooperation uh, from from our members. And, you know, some of our programs, um, you know, as I mentioned, we'll focus beyond just the Capitol grounds to make sure that our members are safe at home and their district offices. You know, we partner with um, the respective sergeant at arms offices in both the House side and the Senate side to make sure that we are kind of in lockstep and communicating our security message to uh, uh, to our to, to our protectees and to the members of Congress uh, and imparting upon them, you know, what the threat may be and you know why it makes sense to to do X or to do Y. Uh, to increase their safety because maybe we're seeing a, a heightened level of attention uh, online, uh, for example. Or, you know, we know that there are some tactics out there that are being used by threat actors and is a, you know, fairly straightforward way to mitigate against them. Uh, and, you know, so we offer all of that uh, to the members for their, um, um, for their use so that they can take avail of, uh, you know, avail themselves uh, of those services. And uh, again, you know, the level of engagement will vary by member, but all in all, I think, you know, people have generally bought into uh, the security mission uh, here at, at Congress because I think they understand themselves um, how important it is to keep this institution safe. Well, that is encouraging. Um, I won't ask whether you give them gold stickers for the best behaved ones. Uh, <laughs> so We don't give out stickers. <laughs> okay, good to know. Um, Let's let's look a bit more about yourself and and the role mm -hmm. that you you've been playing. So you're an ethnic minority of of Indian heritage in a very senior position in a very important uh, police organization. Do you feel any burden or responsibility uh, that your role could help encourage other Asians, other ethnic minority groups to join law enforcement agencies? And and where are we at when it comes to Asians in? Uh, national security um, in in the United States. Yeah, um, you know, I I give this question some thought uh, from time to time. You know, I I don't come to the job with uh, you know wearing my identity, but the identity is who I am. Um, and you know, I certainly don't characterize it as a burden, but again, a privilege to be able to be in this position uh, and be uh, you know somebody representing. Uh, the Desi community, essentially, right? Uh, and and to your point, it's not um, something that um, uh, is traditionally viewed as as a, as a career path uh, for I think a lot of South Asian uh, South Asian families. But I will tell you, having been in both the national security and law enforcement space now for uh, over a decade, probably close to fifteen years now, um, I've come across a lot uh, of uh, folks of South Asian descent. 
uh, that are doing this work on a day-to-day -day basis um, uh, at the ground level um, uh, up to, to, to some senior ranks. Um, and uh, I think that is encouraging uh, for us as a community, uh, particularly here in the United States where um, kind of the, the Desi population is, is relatively new, which is in contrast to say a place like the UK where it's been or you know been there and kind of ingrained for, for a much longer period of time. Here we're fairly new. I mean, my parents immigrated here in um, the early 70s, uh, you know, so I'm first generation born uh, American. Um, but, you know, I do see folks that uh, have that background, you know, are part of that diaspora, part of the Desi diaspora here in the United States, taking this as a uh, solid uh, career choice um, and finding ways to serve their country in that way. Uh, but these are often roles that are not um, visible unless something goes wrong, right? Uh, and so, you know, we do see a lot, I think, more representation for uh, uh, South folks of South Asian descent uh, coming out of the West Coast, right? So we see like, you know, um, CEOs of Microsoft and Google and, you know, um, talent in, in Hollywood, like being kind of the uh, the face of um, uh, the diaspora here in, in in the United States, but you know, I like to think that here in Washington D.C., where we're also holding our own. Most definitely, that's uh, that's very encouraging um, to to hear. Um, you're also a member of the uh, Gay Officers Action League, uh, perhaps mm -hmm. one of the most senior people um, in law enforcement from the LGBTQ plus uh, community. How have you experienced um, attitudes change towards the community and what more needs to be done? Yeah, so, you know, I think the biggest change in attitude um, with respect to uh, being a, a member of the LGBTQ community in law enforcement um, has been my own. Uh, and, I, and I say that because, you know, for this industry in particular, uh, which traditionally is not thought of as being LGBTQ friendly at the national security space, the law enforcement space, uh, it takes a lot of effort um, to, to make the decision to, to be out uh, and to let people know, uh, you know, who you are. And this, this conversation about bringing your whole self to work uh, is, uh, I think, an important consideration. I spent a large part of my career not doing that, you know, trying to think about how to have conversations about my personal life in a way that wouldn't give away the fact that I was, you know, dating guys or, or what have you. Uh, and that is, you know, I think a burden for uh, a lot of people that uh, are in similar, similar shoes. Um, but, you know, organizations like Goal exist because uh, they, uh, it, you know, it, it's clear that the change needs to happen. There need to be change agents making that and pushing for that. Um, and, you know, so Goal started in, you know, the, the early 1980s, uh, and I think since then has grown to uh, a substantial organization working on real change in law enforcement, not only where it started at NYPD, but for law enforcement kind of across the board. And there are similar efforts, you know, going on here, uh, here in D.C. Uh, as well. And the fact that, you know, I can be on this podcast with you talking about being gay and, you know, that I think is itself an indication uh, of change and acceptance uh, in a field. Now, is it all 100%? Of course not. Um, but, you know, I do think one of the most important things um, somebody can do, particularly when you're a member of a, a minority, whether it's, you know, being Indian American or being gay, uh, is to stand up and be counted and, you know, to, to, to be proud of who you are and to kind of take that uh, with you. And, you know, 
that is one thing that I would uh, encourage folks to do, understanding that people, uh, particularly when we're talking about having to, you know, coming out, people are at different stages of that journey. Uh, they can make that decision when they feel that time is right. Um, but I can, you know, sit here um, uh, and honestly say that, you know, there will be challenges to it. Uh, but the other side, uh, I think, is absolutely, absolutely worth it. Well, you set a very important example for two different communities that you can play an active role in law enforcement and be successful um, at that. So it's uh, very important what you're what you're saying, very encouraging and um, and uplifting um, as well. Um, I think uh, we've covered a lot of areas um, in our discussion. Uh, so I'm very grateful to you, Ravi, for being on this uh, podcast. Uh, hope you'll consider being on it again. And in the meantime, please keep everyone in Congress safe. Yeah, absolutely. That's my job. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, it was a great conversation and I'm um, looking forward to seeing you again soon. Yes, most definitely. It's been our pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of NATO Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. My producers are Marcus Andriopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the NATO Deep Dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or DEEP.